WAER Sports proudly presents the Ostrom Avenue Podcast. And Syracuse has knocked off NC State 24-9. The students rush the field. The Orange are bowl eligible and 6-0 for just the third time in the last 87 years. Syracuse stops out the Spiders. It took overtime to do so, but the Orange claimed the first semifinal of the Empire Classic 74 to 71. Breaking down the orange every week. Syracuse's defense dropped by 20 spots on Ken Palm last night. So that was really embarrassing. I think Malik Brown should be getting more minutes. He shows the energy. I think he brought energy when he came to the floor. And talking with the industry's experts. We're joined by a very special guest and a friend of the podcast, Brent Axe. We now have the pleasure of being joined by David Thompson from the USA Today Network. We're joined by a very special guest. It's former SU men's lacrosse star and current ESPN analyst, Paul Carcaterra. It's the Ostrom Avenue podcast from WAER. Hello and welcome to the Ostrom Avenue podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 29th. My name is Ethan Frank. Thank you so much to Empire Hearing and Audiology for their continued support of the Ostrom Avenue podcast. It's a very exciting time in Syracuse. A lot of snow fell yesterday. There was a lot of wind. Uh, as uh, you know, one of the one of the godfathers of this podcast famously tweeted, which I had to quote tweet yesterday. No matter which way you're walking in Syracuse, it always feels like the wind is blowing directly in your face. And that could not have been more true yesterday as about six to eight inches of snow are on the ground as we wake up here on Wednesday morning. A lot to talk about, as always, joined by our fellow Ostrom Avenue podcasters, Mr. Jordan Leonard. Yeah, I mean. A lot of snow. I'm I'm of the elk that when it's going to be cold, that make it at least snow. So I was happy that it was snowing yesterday. But I can attest to that. That comment on Twitter was absolutely correct. Me and Ethan were walking and the snow was going right in our faces for a good five straight minutes. <laughs> I don't know what was worse that in the uh, that was around what, one thirty. But then my walk to the dome as well at about five thirty may have been worse. I, I legitimately yeah. could not pick my face up. To, I was driving. Forward. I was driving at that time, and it was not a fun drive. No, I can Ooh. imagine. I'm sure there are plenty of accidents. We're also joined, as always, by Hudson Ridley. Hudson, how are you? Uh, I, I would say maybe not. Maybe not as good because I didn't have a car to get around like Jordan did, and I got blasted all day yesterday. So I, I really, uh, I bore the brunt of this all directional wind here. Yeah, it, it really is remarkable how how the wind works here. It's always mm-hmm. just just directly in your face. It's it's a very exciting time in, in in the Syracuse athletics world. We'll get into Syracuse men's basketball's win over over LSU from Tuesday night in a little bit, but I have to start with Fran Brown being named the head coach at Syracuse. We did a couple of pods last week about the head coaching search. I don't think either of which mentioned Fran Brown because it kind of came out of nowhere over the weekend. And big shout out to a friend of the program, Brent Axe, who was all over this um, and has been talking about Fran Brown a lot. Uh, so so shout out to him for for really uh, being, being on the ground with this. Uh, I'm going to go over a few details here and then we'll get into it. He it comes from the University of Georgia, secondaries coach, also coached, at Rutgers, which makes Jordan excited, and at Temple. Um, so so coached under some very impressive coaches. I'm going to read a few quotes here uh, from, from Brown and from people within Syracuse and out of Syracuse to give a little context about this guy. So this is from the official press release where you know he, he's a New Jersey native, and here's what Fran Brown said uh, uh, in this press release. Quote, 
I'm incredibly proud to be leading Syracuse football at a university with a rich and storied tradition of academic and athletic excellence. Syracuse football has outstanding talent, great facilities, and passionate alumni. The success of the players is my number one priority on and off the field. I want my guys to succeed in life because they played football at Syracuse. My immediate area of focus is building relationships with the current players and putting together an elite staff while also having fun on the recruiting trail. I'm ready to get to work and look forward to building something special for our fans. He pretty much hit every box there. Uh, I, I don't think anybody would argue with, with anything he had to say here. Here He was, according to 24-7 Sports, the number one recruiter in the country for the class of 2024. And a big reason, I mean, not hard to attract talent to Georgia, uh, the two-time defending national champions. But if you're number one, then you must be doing something right. Here's what John Wildtack said. Fran is an outstanding coach, recruiter, and person, and exactly who we need to take Syracuse football to the next level. Fran has clearly articulated a vision for the future of our football program, and he is a powerhouse recruiter with deep ties to the geographies from where we need to draw consistently. Fran has tremendous success recruiting to a variety of programs in the South, Southwest, and Northeast, and I have no doubt he will bring that track record here to Syracuse. I am looking forward to welcoming Fran and his family to the Orange community. The future is bright for for our football program. And I think those two sentences at the top guys are, are really what matters. He has, he, he can take Syracuse to the next level and he has an articulated vision with a, a deep recruiting background. And that's what stands out to me. Yeah. I think it's his experience just as a recruiter in general. Obviously we've talked about the kind of the problems that, that riddled the Dino Babers era. And one of them was recruiting Syracuse's best recruiting class is the current one in place. Number 50 in the country. They have always been in the bottom of the ACC and Fran Brown is going to bring recruiting to Syracuse. Yes. He was the top recruiter at Georgia. He was number three. I think the year before that also at Georgia, but he was top 25 recruiter in the country at Rutgers. He was the top recruiter in the AAC with temple. And he was a top 10 recruiter, early in his career when he was at Baylor as well. This guy can bring in talent. Also, if you just look at the New Jersey rankings, which again, John Wildtack said was a big factor was ties to the Northeast. Fran Brown, Nunzio Campanelli is a great recruiter in New Jersey. Fran Brown is objectively the best recruiter of the state of New Jersey. Currently right now, he has the number one and two players from the state of New Jersey going to Georgia, a D lineman and an offensive tackle. So not even recruiting just defensive backs, which is his position group, recruiting everybody on the field. And that's really going to play a factor. When you get and get enough talent on the field, you're going to be able to compete in the ACC a little bit better than maybe you have in years past. And, you know, you mentioned Rutgers, big Rutgers fan, has coached under Greg Schiano now. Um, having watched him, he just brings a lot of energy. He's a player's coach. And I think he's, no matter who's on the field, and, you know, who he brings in as offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator, we'll see in the next couple of weeks. But he's going to bring that energy and get his players ready to play and enjoy playing for him. This is also exactly what Syracuse needs right now, because there's a lot of uncertainty when you go into an offseason, you lose your coach, especially with a coach like Dino Babers, where a lot of the guys liked him. So it's it's kind of tough to, to keep those ties, whether or not they liked his system is one thing. But liking him as a person, they clearly did. So now bringing in a guy like Fran Brown, who has the approval of his players, clearly. I mean, if you guys have the chance to go and look on Fran Brown's Twitter and just scroll down, he's updating about his players all the time. I mean, he really is interested in these guys' success, his guys at Georgia. And he has a proven track record of not only bringing those guys in, 
but also having good development within the program. I mean, you see guys like first round picks with Keely Ringo coming out of that secondary in Georgia. And it's been one of the main reasons why they they're so competitive. Lewis seen another guy that was fantastic in that Georgia secondary while he was there. So, I mean, having the recruiting is one thing, but also the talent development and then just being a player's guy. I mean, that really is all what Fran Brown brings. He's going to have to have a good staff around him because he hasn't been a head coach before at any of his stops, but it is a good sign moving forward that this is a guy that players like, and it's proven that they like him so they can stick around. And then also he has the ability to pull from the portal as we go on. So instead of maybe taking a sharp downturn after Dino, we could see a plateau or going higher in the first year of Fran Brown. There's a lot to like. It's a risk. It's definitely a risk. And and the thing for me is you look back at the four major coaches John Wildtax hired over what the last three years, all alums. Uh, two of them were in house already, and and all of them played at Syracuse. When you think of Gary Gate, Kayla Trainer, Felicia Legetjak, and then Adrian Autry, those were not you know extent you know searches like this one where you know football is different than every other sport. Yes. But but this is a risk. I mean, he mentioned it. He wanted someone with at least coordinator experience. And, you know, that's not to take anything away from Fran Brown, who has, you know, kind of adjacent coordinator experience. But his most recent job is a position coach. So so it's different. A few more more things I want to read this from Chancellor Kent Siverod. And as a private university, it's very important that, you know, if it, John Wildtack, you know, wants to make a hire, it's got to go through the board. It's got to go through the chancellor. That's who's writing you know his checks and who he reports to. Here's what Siverud said. Quote, what impressed me most during that conversation with Fran is his deep commitment to our student athletes. He knows how to win and how to recruit, but more importantly, he is passionate about mentoring and guiding student athletes in all aspects of their lives. Fran is the kind of coach who is going to demand excellence from his student athletes and coaching staff in everything they do on the field, in the classroom, and in our community. And not anything super pertinent there, uh, what you would probably expect. Uh, but a, a few more, I got three more to read, and, and these are probably the most interesting besides what John Wildtack said. This from Kirby Smart, head coach at Georgia, his current boss. He said, quote, Fran is excellent. No ego. He's trustworthy, smart, and he's worked really hard during his two seasons here to earn an opportunity like this. He has great relationships in our building. Our players love him, and we couldn't be more excited for him, Tara, and their family. This from Matt Rule, his former boss when he was coaching at, at Temple and at Baylor. Quote, Fran Brown will be a tremendous leader for the Syracuse program. His commitment to improving the lives of the players he coaches will only be matched by his passion for coaching on the field. Syracuse will recruit elite talent, retain and develop those players and produce a team that everyone can be fr- proud of. I mean, that is the three right there. Recruit, retain and develop. Those are the big things for any program. And then lastly, uh, but certainly not leastly, Jordan from Greg Sciato, head coach at Rutgers. <laughs> Quote, I am proud of Fran and thrilled for him to have this opportunity. Syracuse University is getting both a dynamic coach and a great addition to their community. I'm elated for Fran and his whole family. So Hudson, what stands out to you from those three head coaches? Well, for me, it really was the retention aspect that Matt Rule talked about and building on a program. Obviously, you can say what you want to say about Matt Rule and Syracuse over the last month or so with that whole situation uh, with Tony White. But I, I do think that retention is incredibly important because we Tom Luganville, he came on the pod earlier this year and he had a lot to say about when you're a developmental program, you have to hang on to these guys. Yeah, you develop them. You're, you're not going to get top level talent, but you're going to develop them. And I, I don't necessarily know, even if Fran Brown is a 
even if he's a great recruiter, if he can really get that top level talent to Syracuse, it's about developing it past that. So what Matt Rule said gave me a lot of confidence, but then also having a guy like Kirby Smart at your back, just the names that come out for him are really important, I think, just as a backing of his character. That's what I took. Yeah, I mean, going to that developmental type program, and this is also partly because I'm a Rutgers fan, but Rutgers is in a similar standing within the Big Ten. They're towards the bottom, but they're trying to work their way up. They're never going to be at the top with Ohio State and Michigan. But if they bring in solid players and develop them, they can have a season where they start out six and three. And I was going back in terms of like, we're talking about recruiting Fran Brown. That's his biggest attribute. The first year he was at Rutgers, the first year he could recruit a class. He had the number two, three and five recruits in the state of New Jersey, which is a big recruiting base for Syracuse. And Ethan, you talked about how it's the big risk and John Wildhack hasn't taken a risk in necessary his other hires. I think the football team is is a team that you need to take a risk with. If you go and look at the other teams that he's taken and he's hired coaches for, men's basketball, proven success for the last 50 years, day in, day out. Women's basketball has been to the top, kind of fell off, obviously, because of the scandal. Women's lacrosse, one of the top programs in the country. Men's lacrosse, one of the top programs in the country. So you can always fall back on that tradition. And like people are going to come to Syracuse because they have one of the top programs in the country for all four of those sports. Football, not so much. They've, they've been good in the past. Like obviously when Donovan McNabb was here, but you need to take more of a risk to get back to where you want to get to for the football team. If you hire maybe a safe coach like a Bob Chesney, you maybe won't get to the top or or higher than you want to get because it's a safe hire. It's Shanikan just playing it safe. With Fran Brown, the potential is more there. Obviously, the floor may be a little bit lower, but I think the ceiling is high enough to make it worth it because of what college football is right now. What is it about? Recruiting high school talent, keeping them there. So being a player's coach and being invested in your players is key to that, but also recruiting in the transfer portal. Football teams can be revitalized in one season if you get good, solid transfer portal targets that can help your team out here and now. And Fran Brown, in the recent history, has proven that he can do that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really solid point. Um, it, it seems like the finalists for this job were Bob Chesney, Jason Candle, the head coach at Toledo, and, and Fran Brown is what we what we figured out. And, you know, all the Dan Mullen stuff we talked about last week, John Wildtag vehemently uh, spoke to Chris Carlson at Syracuse.com and said ne- he never spoke to Dan Mullen in any way. Call, meeting, text, email, uh, DM, never spoke to him, which – I mean, we talked about it last week. I talked about it with some people. How could there not be any – how how could there be that much smoke and no fire with it at all? I, I – I, like I want to – I want to say I believe that it's not true, but like how can you – there be jokes made about it on an ESPN broadcast and with no denial and then there be no contact about it at all? How can that just all be rumor that's made up? Also, yeah. if it's not true – that's incredibly frustrating, too, because Dan Mullen is, you know, one of the top guys in that circle that you want to look to. Everything lined up with him as well. Northeast ties has a history of at a program like Syracuse. We talked about it at length last week. If they weren't talking to Dan Mullen at any point, then you also got to wonder, OK, yeah, they maybe they didn't want to fork over the money for Dan Mullen or things like that. But at the same time, you, you got to talk to him at least. Yeah. Maybe if he has a moderate amount of interest, 
at least talk to him, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you never have the conversation, you never know how well it could go. I, I'm I'm with Ethan though. I I don't know how no conversation could be had because for the basically the entirety of last week from Tuesday on, the conversation was, oh, Dan Mullen. Oh, was he on campus? Oh, was he at practice? What's the what's going on with him? And no what like there were other names being, you know, mentioned here and there, but literally the focus was Dan Mullen for the entirety of last week. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, it's it's interesting to think about. I would I would expect interim head coach Nunzio Campanelli to stick on with Fran Brown's staff, considering their Rutgers ties, their New Jersey ties, and I definitely I would expect Nunzio to coach this bowl game wherever Syracuse is going. I would say right now the Fenway Bowl seems most likely on December twenty eighth. That would be at Fenway Park in in Boston, Massachusetts, which would be quite exciting. Um, second baseball stadium of the year to play a football game in for Syracuse, which is is kind of ironic. And I would also expect Fran Brown to continue coaching at Georgia until you know Georgia you know stops winning or they're not playing anymore. Uh, the SEC championship game coming up this weekend on Saturday against Alabama, and then if they're in the college football playoff, I would certainly expect Fran Brown to coach in the college football playoff if Georgia to make it. This is a team trying to this is a team trying to win three national how titles. You, how do you get introduced as a coach though on next Monday and still coach that's for why, Georgia though? That's why you got Nunzio. Yeah. Exactly. He's not going to coach you the bowl game. You think he's going to give up on a national championship yeah. potential team to come I, I, to Syracuse I think a week early? I think he's. It, it's like a month early. A month. Yeah, you're give, sure. you're a, giving a month. up. You're it giving up the fine. entirety of the initial I'm transfer. Sure, portal I'm sure period. he's going to be doing plenty of work for both sides. But I would be. I if Georgia was in the college football playoff, I would be shocked if he was not coaching in it. I mean, he's the DB's coach. I can't, I mean, well, I don't know. I I can I can see both sides, but I I feel like that had to have been a conversation with John Wildeck sure. of what I'm he sure. was going to do. I'm sure, and we'll find out on Monday at the press conference. Um, any any final thoughts on Fran Brown before we move on to uh, to basketball? I'm just excited that Syracuse finally took a risk in terms of not playing it safe. Like, as I mentioned, this football program is not necessarily where you want it to be. And the, the recent hires for John Wildhack have been safe alums. But for you to get back to prominence in the ACC and to really try to compete with the likes of Clemson or North Carolina, you need to take a risk. And this is a high risk, uh, high, high risk, high reward type hire. I also think this is the best way to bring buzz kind of back to the program, even though after this hire, it it feels like there's a little bit there right now, especially with people looking forward to the future. But after, you know, such a crash and burn season that this was, it's still a little bit tough to pick up the pieces. Once springtime rolls around and the, the spring game gets going, recruits start showing up for Fran Brown, the buzz is really going to be there. And it's something that we haven't seen with this team since, uh, midway through the Clemson game last year. And up until that point, it was all downhill. I think it's time to start going back uphill, and this will do that. It'll be it'll be really interesting to follow, and uh, I'm sure the buzz will be palpable as you know the transfer portal, and we'll see what Syracuse does on National Signing Day, how much of this recruiting class uh, Fran Brown is able to keep or if he's able to add to it at all. It'll be really, really interesting. Speaking of winning, uh, Syracuse men's basketball. Comes back from Hawaii. We talked about it last week that this LSU game was going to be really interesting. And Syracuse goes out and, and wipes the floor with the Tigers in the second half. 80 to 57, your final score. Syracuse outscores LSU by 18 in the second half after being up five at halftime. Judah Mintz a career high, 33 points. I was there. 
it was a very interesting game to watch because coming into it, you know, uh, we, we talked about, you know, Ken Palm a little uh, coming up in a little bit Hudson with uh, with Matt Newton of Cavaliers now previewing this weekend's game against Virginia. LSU was about 50 to 60 spots higher on Ken Palm than Syracuse going into this game, even though their resumes were pretty similar, really, really not that that much different LSU with probably a worse loss considering they lost it at home to Nichols. But you you think about you know Syracuse coming into this game, it struggled against Tennessee uh, at the end of the game. It struggled against Gonzaga at the end of the game, and then it pretty much puts this game away in the first ten minutes of the second half. LSU goes, I want to say, two for twenty-two from three. Syracuse's defense, Adrian Autry said it after the game. It was the best you know game his team has played this season, and certainly the best defensive game. I don't remember a single possession of zone. I felt like they played man the whole game. It was a it was it was very very impressive, and I've said it. If you're only going to have two guys in double figures, that's probably not a recipe for success. But when two of those guys combine for over 50 points, then I guess it is a recipe for success. Now, you mentioned it when when Judah and Chris combine for 53 points and LSU combines as a team for 57. I think you're pretty much guaranteed to win most of those games. Would I have liked a third score in double figures? Probably. J.J. Starling didn't have the best day. Justin Taylor was solid. Um, in terms of that Kempom, I like they have similar resumes, but LSU's best opponent is Wake Forest, and Syracuse has played Tennessee and Gonzaga. And Ken Palm, in terms of their rankings, is based on overall efficiency, both offensive and defensively. So Syracuse has played better teams, which I think contributes to the lower ranking. But Syracuse really took this game and was like, this is where we need to establish that we can beat Power 5 teams. And LSU is not the best Power 5 team they're going to see all year. They're probably going to be middle of the pack to lower the ACC because they're still rebuilding their program from all the sanctions that came their way. But this was a dominant performance, especially in the second half. Syracuse was was not playing – they were playing great defense in the first half, not playing great offense. It was really the only – the Judah Mintz show. And then in the second half, Chris Bell came alive from three-point land, ended up 6 of 10. And that really showed us that when Syracuse wants to put their pedal to the metal, they can compete and blow out teams that are uh, middle of the pack in the power five. I would argue that LSU is lower than middle of the pack in the power five, though. When you look at who they played, I mean, a loss to Dayton in, or I mean, Ethan, you mentioned Nichols, a loss to Nichols at home and then to Syracuse. Now they fall to four and three. I, I know you like Ken Palm. You're a big Ken Palm guy. I like, I like numbers. Season. That's fine. I like numbers. I, I, I'm, I'm a numbers guy, but I also like heart. I also like heart. I, I like love seeing it out there on the court. I love Ken Palm at the end of the season, not at the beginning exactly. of the season. But now when you look at it and LSU's supposedly way higher, nothing on their schedule was particularly impressive coming into this game. You can credit Syracuse with getting a win in this game. I don't think LSU is a great measuring stick of what we can see with more power five opponents down the line against the likes of Oregon. I don't think a performance like this could hold up, but back-to-back games of senior shots go in. It doesn't matter who it's against. It's still big. I mean, a blowout, you put a one Oh five against Chaminade. I understand that's a division two school, but then playing against a power five school and having that offense transition over, it doesn't matter who they play against offense is offense and Judah and Chris bell combining for over 50 points is massive so continuing that success is is paramount uh to the team going forward i just don't know if lsu was the best measure 
Syracuse actually, after last night, improved to 100 in Ken Palm. LSU down to 91. So oh, they were 97. They were like 97th when I looked last night. Oh, they, well, they improved to 91 by the end of the night. No, no, Syracuse was 97th. They moved all the way. Oh, they Syracuse? Moved yeah, Syracuse was 97th. Interesting. The interesting thing for me on Kempom right now is that usually the the thing that help, help holds Syracuse down is the defense. The last four years, their defense has been like below 120 consistently in Kempom. The defense is all the way up to 90th in Kempom, and the offense is 123. So that's mm. the interesting thing for me is the defense actually, according to defensive efficiency standpoint, is outperforming the offense by 30 plus spots in a national in overall nationally i mean it helps when your opponent shoots under 40 percent from the field and two of 22 from three one would say the defense caused that yeah i mean there's two ways of looking at it. i should say mention on the scoring department that i have been on the record saying that when looking at you know players scoring we should just combine malik brown and naheem mcleod and they combine for 13 which i think you'll take any night of the week if your big men are combining for double double figures and then that's a good thing um you know, Notice that Malik Brown played a lot more in that second half than Naheem McLeod. Naheem McLeod is a 20 to 25 minute per game player. 25 minutes is probably his maximum. I talked with him in the locker room after after the game. Um, I mean, it, it it cannot be understood how massive a human being this guy is. I mean, it is yeah. like I mean, it is like it, it is crazy. Just <laughs> just looking up at him. Um, but but he he, he was feeling good. I mean. If anybody is the flights to and from Hawaii, it's got to impact that guy the most. But uh, he said he was in an exit row on the way there, uh, which which he you know he said he slept the whole time. But then on the way back, he said he was sitting right behind Malik Brown, and Malik was was very fidgety with his seat, so he, he had to he had to deal with that, which I thought was quite funny. But I do obviously have to give a shout out to my guy Quadir Copeland because first player adrian autry mentioned in his press conference in his opening statement yesterday was the impact quarter copeland has on the court even if it does not show up in the box score and with jj starling having an off night last night i loved the decision to go to quarter copeland as you know the guard in the backcourt next to judah mintz rather than kyle cuff because he just offers a different type of versatility defensively autry saying he can guard one through four and then you see the flashiness he has he had that really nice euro step layup the behind the back pass to malik brown he just offers a different element to the game than really anyone else on Syracuse because of all the different things he can do, even if his you know output on the box score isn't there. Yeah, no, you talk I, about a low – sorry, Jordan. You talk about a low impact on the box score, though. Two points, one steal, two turnovers, three fouls, an assist and a rebound in 11 minutes. He wasn't stuffing but what the do you? Sheet. But what do you remember from the game? You remember the behind-the-back pass to Malik Brown, and you remember the Eurostep layup. That's all that matters. I'm, I'm, you're blinded by the lights a little bit, but I like to flash. I like to flash. Doesn't hurt. I kind of agree with Adrian Och. I, I was gonna literally read the stats exactly like Hudson was gonna do. But um I do I do in essence agree with Adrian Autry that he's he's one of those guys that you don't look at the box score to see his impact on the floor because of his length as a guard, his ability to bring the ball up the floor and and really be that pass first minded guy. He's really the only guard that you can put in there. I guess you could say Kyle Cuff, but really only Quadir Copeland is the guy that's going to be a pass first guard. JJ and Judah should and are looking to score when they drive to the hoop or try to make a play. Quadir is one of those guys where you can kind of 
you know, set up the offense, be that floor general, look to pass, not necessarily a score. And that really helps you too, especially if JJ Starling's having a, a night, a, a bad night and not shooting the ball. Well, he brings that other aspect where he can dribble the ball. Cause I think as much as Judah Mintz loves to be in control of the ball and, and be like James Harden and run the possession, I think he's better if he's off the ball a lot, a little bit more because he saves a lot of energy. One, he can kind of rest a little bit and then get the ball towards the end of the possession. And it also gives him different looks where he can, you know, make a back cut or get against maybe a different defender um, if he's off the ball rather than bringing the ball up full court and running the offense uh, possession in possession out. Yeah, and I think they did a good job of balancing that last night where, you know, there were possessions where Mintz brought the ball up the court, but Starling brought it up, you know, Copeland, Cuff, when they were in the game, uh, Cuff in his very limited, I want to say he only played three minutes, uh, very very limited uh, action last night. I also thought Syracuse's guards, you know, I talked about this on the double overtime a lot after those games in Maui, did a much better job of if they were driving the lane, dropping it off to McLeod or Brown. There was a lot of secondary, you know, there was obviously a lot of drive and kick and Justin Taylor uh, can't sing his praises enough because he does did such a good job. I asked him about it of, you know, kind of being that secondary playmaker where he'll get the ball off off Judah's initial playmaking where he drives and kicks. Justin Taylor had five assists in this game. And a lot of that is, you know, making the extra pass to Chris Bell, who was on fire in the second half. But, you know, when those guards drive the lane, multiple times you saw a dump off to Malik Brown or Naheem McLeod for a layup or a dunk. And that's why those guys ended up, you know, combining to score in double figures. I thought that was something that 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 the guards did a really good job, which isn't what we saw against Gonzaga and Tennessee because of how well they were hedging and trapping the ball handlers at the top of the key. Mintz had a, a really nice pass to Malik Brown in the first half where he wrapped it around a defender and Brown had a dunk, it, it, it a, an uncontested dunk. Those are things Syracuse has to do more in Virginia. The pack line defense hedges really hard. So it'll be really interesting coming up on Saturday. Yeah, I think their biggest test defensively, obviously Tennessee was number one in the country. Um, Virginia is always going to be intense on defense. If the, I was very proud of what Syracuse did in terms of getting their bigs involved, because if they can do that on a consistent basis, like we said, if you combine Malik Brown and Hema Cloud's points and they're around, you know, 10 to 15, that is a perfect night for Syracuse because Yes, this team is going to be led by their guards, but they need some production down low to at least claim that it's a threat that they can go there. If Judah Mintz now puts it on film and J.J. Starling, if, if they put it on film, that they can drop it off to a Malik Brown or Naheem McLeod and they can dunk it home, then that makes the defense have to take them in and focus a little bit less on the drive for Judah Mintz. And also, Judah Mintz getting to the hoop also helps out Naheem McLeod and Malik Brown because it's going to free them up. And we don't mention this, but Judah Mintz draws like, draws, like 10 fouls per game. He, had, he drew 11 fouls yesterday. He had, took 15 free throws. That's like NBA Trey Young type numbers. Like nobody I've seen draws that many fouls as Judah Mintz does. Mm -hmm. And he hit 13 of them. So at least he's converting at an NBA level. He That was his kind of NBA breakout game. It felt like the 33 points, obviously a career high. Last week, we talked about it a lot, though, that kind of offensive cohesion that we want to see a little bit more after Maui that we were kind of left without other than the Chaminade game, obviously. I was really impressed. I think they turned it around, and I originally was very worried for a Virginia game where it was what kind of offensive game plan do we bring there aren't a lot of half court sets being run how do we figure things out on like on this side how does Syracuse kind of plan things out now there's a little bit more of a plan there's a little bit more cohesion and obviously 
that pack line defense is incredibly tough to break. But at the same time, there is a plan now, and shooters are getting hot. There is a way to beat Virginia, even though uh, Ken Palm will tell you that there's a, a big disparity. There's still a way in. Yeah, I mean, you go and play at Virginia, um, and it's just – if you go you, you go and play at Virginia, in years past, you're really not going to have a great shot to to get going. But the way that Syracuse showed cohesion, and it, it like you said, uh, Hudson, it's uh, doing it against a Power 5 team. Is LSU's defense as good as Virginia's? No, it's objectively not. But the fact that you can show that – and I think in terms of like running offensive sets, you have guards that can create for themselves enough where it takes a little bit pressure off where you don't have to run offensive sets as much. My question is, if Virginia focuses their energy on Judah Mintz, which is eventually going to happen, this team runs through Judah Mintz. They're going to win because Judah Mintz is playing well. You know, Shamanad where he had four points, that's an outlier. But if what happens when a defense focuses on just taking away Judah Mintz and not letting him score, how does Syracuse respond is what I'm going to be interested to see as we go forward with Virginia, the rest of non-conference play, and then getting into conference play at the end of it. It'll be it'll be really, really interesting. Uh, Saturday will be, you know, one of, if not the biggest test, especially on the road uh, in a true road game. It'll be the first true road game of the season for Syracuse. And uh, we had the pleasure of talking with a couple of Virginia basketball experts, Matt Newton and Jerry Ratcliffe, to learn a little bit more about the Cavaliers. Hope you enjoy. We are now joined by recurring guest, Matt Newton, the publisher of Cavaliers. Now he was on the show last year to break down one of the matchups between Syracuse and Virginia. And he's back this year to preview the game between the Orange and the Cavaliers, this time in early December, recording this late November. Matt, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me on again. So what is there to know about Virginia? What's what's different from, from last year to this year? I mean, everything. Um, the Starting with the roster, the only name you're really going to see on there that you really recognize is Reese Beekman. He's the only starter that comes back from last year's team that lost four of its starting five, five of its top six scores. Um, you also get back Isaac McNeely, who was the team's leading three-point shooter last year. And then Ryan Dunn played a few minutes as well. But those are the only three guys who were key rotation players from last season. And uh, this year's team is just totally different. They went into the transfer portal, got four guys uh you'll see most of them play significant minutes and then also a few freshmen so you'll probably see a freshman starting at center for virginia which is not something that you usually see from tony bennett's squad that's blake buchanan a freshman from idaho and it's just new faces everywhere and for a tony bennett program that has relied a lot on experience over the years that's definitely unusual to see so many new guys playing big minutes for this team Obviously, this kind of becomes a completely different look for a team going forward. What can UVA fans really expect out of this team, especially with the last couple of years, maybe a little more stability and now kind of getting thrown into the fire and testing Tony Bennett? A little? Yeah, definitely not exactly the most stable situation. Uh, we've seen a lot of different rotations early in the year. We had a bunch of different starting lineups, and they're still trying to figure out the front court. That's that's where the biggest question marks are. They know they have a bona fide star in Ryan Dunn, who is an NBA first-round prospect next year at the, at the four, 
but they can't figure out who to put next to him at the five. We all expected it to be Jordan Minor, a transfer from Merrimack. He hasn't played too much early on. That's why you've seen the freshman Blake Buchanan. But as with any freshman, there have been some growing pains. The other options are Jake Groves, who's a transfer from Oklahoma. He's a fifth-year senior. But he's not really a center. He's six foot. He's six foot nine, but he's he's on the skinnier side, and so he's better as a stretch four. So Virginia really lacks that that true center who who has the experience to play that position. And they've they've enjoyed having a really experienced rim protector in the past, and so that they're missing that now. What I will say is that I think this team defensively has one of the highest ceilings of any that Tony Bennett has had at Virginia because it might be Tony Bennett's most athletic team that he's ever had. Between Ryan Dunn, Reese Speakman, Leon Bond is a redshirt freshman who's, who's playing really well early in the season. They have a ton of athletes who, even when there's defensive breakdowns, they're really good at recovering block shots, steals, very active hands. This this UVA team gets more steals than you usually see. They're not the most they're usually not the most aggressive defense this year. That's changing a little bit. So, you know, with the current age of, of college basketball, NIL transfer portal, you know, retaining talent is really important. And you mentioned, you know, Virginia does not have a, a lot of the same players it, it had uh, a last season for a variety of reasons. How is Tony Bennett adjusting to that and, and trying to supplement this roster with talent, whether that be high school recruiting or using the transfer portal and and then through NIL collectives? That's a question that Tony's been asked a lot this year and just over the last couple of years. And his approach has been that he wants to stay true to his principles as much as he possibly can, while recognizing that in order to remain competitive in this age of college basketball, you have to be able to adapt. So we saw him hit the transfer portal heavy this offseason, but it was because he had to. They lost, I think, seven. It ended up being seven scholarship players through either graduation, the transfer portal, or somebody leaving early for the NBA draft. And so it kind of forced his hand. You know, I don't think he goes into any offseason thinking, I have to get four new players in the transfer portal because that's not the way that he's done it for the last 14 years. Um, and so he would prefer to not have to bring in so many new faces because the way that Virginia basketball has run for the entire time he's been there is get guys who want to be here get guys who want to be at UVA, go through that growth process and develop over time. You don't usually get a lot of players who are playing right away, freshman and sophomore year. They're patient. They stay in the program, they develop, and then they get their, you know, they're peaking by their junior and senior seasons. That's a lot harder to do nowadays to tell an 18 year old kid who's seeing around the country, everybody get these NIL deals and immense playing time early on. That's just, that hasn't been a thing at, at Virginia. I will say that that while a lot of it is unconfirmed, we've heard some pretty good things about what UVA has been able to offer on the basketball side from an NIL perspective. So I think they're competitive there. I don't think that's been a reason that guys aren't going. Um, but Tony is never going to tell a recruit that he's guaranteed to play early on. And that is a big reason why they've missed out on on some of their, their bigger five-star targets because that's what they want to hear. They want to hear that they're going to play right away. So you can see him adjusting a little bit they've adjusted to nil they've adjusted to the transfer portal but there are things that tony won't budge on his principles and the bottom line is there's still a type of player and a type of person that tony bennett is going to recruit and he's never going to budge on that he's never going to bring in a guy that doesn't fit the culture of the program that he's built at virginia 
that kind of specific model that you mentioned that he's built at Virginia kind of feels like it's really obviously brought success to the program, but now not really sure if that can take the program any farther, obviously not passing the first round after that championship in 2018, 2019. Do you feel like this kind of success run of UVA has evened out and plateaued a little bit more? Do you think there's still room to break through for some more final four runs or championships? I'd say there's still room, and maybe that's just the optimist in me. But if we talk about a plateau, I think there is a plateau in the sense that the last time they won an NCAA tournament game was the championship in 2019. And if you look strictly at March Madness success, that's not great. You don't want to, you know, for a program that's consistently a higher seed in the NCAA tournament to not have an NCAA tournament win in five years, it's, it's not good by any measure. But I don't think you can measure a program's success entirely on the NCAA tournament because you are playing a season for the other four months out of the year. And at the end of the day, only one team can win the national championship at the end. There's a lot of really good programs out there that have never won one. Um, but when you look at what they've done since winning that national championship, they've got a couple of ACC regular season titles. They've been top four seeds in the NCAA tournament a handful of times. They've made it to the ACC championship game. Tony Bennett is still winning a lot of games, and there's people who place a large value on that. I don't think, uh, you know, we should be discrediting anything that they do before they get to March just because they seem to have some problem with that first round. They can't beat the, you know, the double-digit seed that, that just lights them up in the first round. Um, I think – some of it with March Madness is just the luck of the draw. I think maybe UVA used up a bit of its of its uh, store of luck on that run to the, to the national title in 2019. And it's kind of maybe come back to, to even it out in the first round in their last couple of tries. Um, but I think Tony Bennett is too good of a coach and they do have too much talent for this, you know, this run from the last four or five years where they can't seem to get past the first round. I don't think that'll last. I think they'll... I, I see them making the tournament this year again. I see them winning a game or two. Um, and I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see how this team kind of kind of puts itself together. But I don't see a plateau in the sense that they can never make it back to the Final Four. I, I think Tony Bennett is too good of a coach. I think they'll, they have too much talent in the program. They have too much talent coming in. I, I, I think that there's still more March success for this program to have. How do you think the expansion of the ACC impacts that, adding Stanford, Cal, SMU? How does that, I guess, does it uniquely impact Virginia in any way? Does it help? Does it hurt? Uh, I guess overall, how, how does it how does it change things for UVA? You know, it's an interesting question. And I think if you asked Tony Bennett, well, first, you, you probably wouldn't get a straight answer right now because he'd say we're focused on, you know, Texas A&M tonight and Syracuse on Saturday. So you'd have to ask him in June or something like that when he's got nothing else going on. Um, I'm sure he's got some interesting thoughts. I I appreciate that you asked it with regards to basketball because most people consider it only regard, with regards to football and, and what those programs will bring to the ACC. Um, and I think there's some exciting things there. Um, the number one concern everybody always had was travel, right? Especially for some of the Olympic sports, you know, having to go out West. I think the ACC has done a fine job of managing that. I mean, even looking at what they did with the football schedules in terms of limiting teams having to go across the country, they only got to do it every other year. I imagine they'll do something similar. I think I have to reserve my full answer to this question until we see what the schedule looks like. Because, you know, it was only a few years ago that the ACC shifted to the 20-game conference model for men's basketball. 
And I'm interested to see how that changes um, because I, I think I like the way the conference has handled its, its scheduling with you have two teams that you play twice a year and then it's kind of a rotation of, of who you play twice a year and other years. And I'd like to see that stay. I'm not sure that adding three teams is going to impact it that much, um, but I'm interested to see how they handle scheduling because as long as everything's handled right, then the impact should be minimal. I think it'll be fun to play these new teams um, I remember Virginia had a, had a really good couple of games with Cal back in, I think, 2015 and 2016. Jalen Brown was there, and we had this great matchup between Malcolm Brogdon and Jalen Brown that went to overtime, I think, when Cal was at Virginia. Now, obviously, that was a long time ago, but you know, that's, that's kind of the only thing I have to go off of in terms of Virginia playing SMU and, and Cal and Stanford. I mean, I, I think it just adds a, a fun flavor to the conference, and, and we'll see what those programs look like from a basketball standpoint moving forward, but it's exciting. Obviously, UVA a lot more familiar with Syracuse than uh, Cal, Stanford, or SMU. In the last 10 games, UVA 9-1 and one against Syracuse. I want to know what makes – UVA so impactful against Syracuse obviously no longer running the 2-3 zone and kind of mixing it up with man-to-man but what do you think has been kind of the biggest thing to make the Cavaliers just so overpowering against SU so it's interesting I, I I'm I'm very interested to see this matchup because it'll be the first time Virginia's playing Syracuse without that 2-3 zone I do think that some of it has to do with Virginia having figured out the two, three zone to an extent. It kind of seemed like maybe it took some trial and error early in each matchup, but Tony Bennett eventually figured out who do I need to have in the center of that zone in order to kind of break it down. And so I think once he did that, Syracuse was in an uphill battle from there because if Virginia is scoring at a high enough level, you're not going to beat them because you're not going to be able to score consistently enough on the other end. It's, it's the same way that Syracuse was able to win so many games under Jim Beheim. They had the athletes and the talent to score enough and the two, three zone, while it wasn't perfect, it caused enough problems. It got other teams out of sync enough that Syracuse could win a ton of those games because they're like, we're going to score more than you. We're going to be able to score on your defense more than you're going to score on ours. And I think when Virginia and Syracuse got together all those years between Tony Bennett and Jim Beheim, Bennett had the upper hand because he could rely on his system, his defensive system, a little more than Beheim could on his 2-3 zone because Tony had kind of figured it out a little bit. Now, that wasn't perfect every single time. There were some really close matchups. Um, and we all, you know, I, I can remember probably every single one of the losses to Syracuse in the last decade. They were pretty significant. Um, the one in the last 10, I think, that you, that you mentioned, I was there for. It was uh, in 2020. And I think Syracuse had scored something like 40, like maybe 40 in regulation. And then they scored 20 in over time because uh, Joe Girard and Buddy Beheim went off. I think they hit like six threes in overtime or something like that. Um, but that's usually what it took. And that's why Tony was able to have so much success against Syracuse. So I'm interested to see, um, you know, it, it'll be more of a, a typical ACC matchup where, where Syracuse has, you know, gotten rid of the traditional two, three zone. And, and it's more of a Tony against any ACC team in that point. So I'm interested to see, how the town, you know, kind of this basketball rivalry enters a new chapter. 
I know every team says this about, you know, uh, uh, teams they play often, but I do think it will be a huge reprieve for Syracuse fans to not see Kihei Clark on the other side of the floor, considering how well, you know, he was often the guy, at least over these last few years, that Tony Bennett was putting in the middle of the zone to make those key decisions. I, I feel like one year he may, he may have been close to a triple-double or at least a double-double with points and assists, the way he was able to find shooters or the big guys down low. Uh, over over the past couple seasons, looking back to to last year's matchups, Syracuse uh, or I guess Virginia by five over Syracuse up in the dome, and then only one by seven down in Charlottesville. Would you expect this to be a close game as well, based on you know the results we've seen from from the Cavaliers over the course of the season, beating you know Florida by three, beating West Virginia by two? They've been playing a lot of close games uh, over the course of this young season. Yeah, I would be very surprised to see this go into the double digits in terms of end deficit. Um, now, Virginia did get run off the floor by Wisconsin at Fort Myers. Um, that was a combination of a couple of things. Virginia went ice cold from the perimeter, which we're not sure how good of a three-point shooting team this is going to be. We know that individually there are a few guys who can knock down a shot. Um, but as with any Virginia team, if the shots from outside the arc aren't falling, it's going to be hard for them to get to 60 points. Um, that combined with Virginia's biggest weakness right now, and I'm sure you were probably going to ask it at some point. So I apologize if I steal one of your questions. Um, right now is defensive rebounding. I mentioned the issues in the front court where they haven't really. Oh, welcome it. to the club. Yeah. <laughs> Syracuse's <laughs> issue too. <laughs> and so I'm I'm definitely afraid of it tonight because Texas A&M comes in in the ACC SEC Challenge as the number one offensive rebounding team in the country, and so Virginia got bludgeoned on the well. Virginia's defensive glass against Wisconsin. And that's how that ended up being such a lopsided result is Wisconsin had so many second chance opportunities and Virginia just wasn't making shots on the other end. To go back to your original question. Yeah, there have been some, there have been three, I think major conference opponents Virginia has played. This will be the, the fourth one, but the third one in a row. And so what we've seen in those games is Virginia is good enough to win them, but I don't think Virginia is good enough right now to blow a team out <laughs> who's who's kind of matching them in terms of talent level. And so I expect this to be a close game. I think that tonight will be a good litmus test. Um, I apologize. I keep saying tonight. I'm sure this podcast is going to be posted today. We're talking about Wednesday night, Virginia versus Texas A&M. Got the number 14 ranked team in the country coming in. That'll be a, a a good confidence measure to, to figure out how do I feel about this team going into Saturday against Syracuse? I do expect the Syracuse game to be close. You, you talked a little earlier about how it's kind of a, maybe a shaky feel around the program a little bit when you have a freshman center and new pieces in place for Tony Bennett. I was wondering if you've kind of noticed a theme with this team, maybe if Tony Bennett is putting it on his team or kind of a rallying cry that the community has to kind of push this team forward. Have you seen any of that? Well, I'll tell you that, that for, for most of the UVA community right now, they're hoping that this team puts it together right now and, and wins some games because it's around this time of year, every year, that all UVA sports fans shift their attention entirely away from football and towards basketball. Uh, the end of the football season was not a good one for Virginia. And so they're eager to see, you know, their their big sport, um, you know, kind of turn things around. So I would say for, from a community perspective, they're kind of just hoping that that Tony does what he usually does. Um, 
the week in Fort Myers, those two games definitely did not inspire confidence, right? They, they, they go in, they were 4-0, I think, going into that week. And it was a good field, right? It's, it was SMU, West Virginia, and, West, and Wisconsin. Those are, those are quality teams. But it was one that I think UVA fans and just basketball fans in general expected Virginia to win. And not, you know, not easily, but not really like it wasn't going to be impossible for them to do that. It was it was likely they had just been ranked number 24, I think, going into that week. And so those two performances, even though they did go one and one, they were able to avoid going 0 and 2. They were disappointing. First, you get blown up, blown out by a Wisconsin team that I think most UVA fans expected Virginia to be able to beat. Virginia has had some some good success against Wisconsin over the years, kind of with both teams playing a similar style where they're willing to play in the forties and fifties in terms of final score. And then on Wednesday, you played a very shorthanded West Virginia team. I think they had seven scholarship players available. And so to see that game come down to the wire and to see Virginia again, struggle on the defensive glass, I think that has caused kind of a shakening of the confidence right now in this team. They were feeling pretty good after the win over Florida. It was a decent start to the season. They were excited about the way the new pieces were being integrated. I think anytime you get a bunch of new faces in a Tony Bennett program, people are really excited because he does, you know, Tony Bennett can't do what he usually does, which is reward experience. He has to play an experienced guys. He has to play the freshmen. So people are really excited to see that. And so now it'll be interesting to see they've had a week off since that West Virginia game. They had a lot to work on. They still have to figure out the front court. They still have some things to clean up on the defensive end, but most importantly, they got to figure out how to rebound the ball. And so I think this is a key turning point where Virginia still has some pretty significant non-conference matchups coming up with Texas A&M on Wednesday night, and then they're going to Memphis later in December. And I think those games combined with this this early ACC matchup against Syracuse is going to determine how a lot of people feel about what the ceiling is for this program. Because even before the season started, Tony Bennett talked a lot about how this was going to have to be the long game for this team. He knew they weren't going to be really good right away. There was just too many pieces for that. It's too difficult to learn the pack line defense. It's not going to be at its best this early in the season but he thought the potential of the team was to be playing really good basketball by the end of the year. Well, by the end of December, we'll know kind of, I think what the ceiling for this team is and, and these matchups against A&M, Syracuse and Memphis will, will do a lot to figure that out. Everything you've been saying about Virginia is pretty much exactly how I've been. And, and a lot of people have been feeling about Syracuse too. Adrian Autry's talked at length that, you know, this is a, I mean, it's a Syracuse team that it's starting lineup is, four sophomores and a junior and the junior is a transfer. So he's in his first year at, at Syracuse. So it's a very inexperienced group. And a lot of those things you said ring, ring pretty much the exact same uh, for, for this Syracuse team that, you know, we were saying, you know, don't panic uh, after, you know, you go to the Maui Invitational and you lose games to, to big time teams. And I know it's a little different for Virginia based on, on, on its opponents in its early season tournaments. But it's interesting because you kind of think of this Virginia Syracuse game, you almost think of it as a non-conference game because of where it falls in the schedule. You know, Syracuse plays LSU last night on Tuesday and, and plays really well. And then, you know, like Virginia does with a game against Memphis coming up, Syracuse has a, a 
neutral site game against Oregon. So you you have another big non-conference test. These two teams are, are on pretty similar paths and are going to need some time. I'm curious your thoughts uh, on the ACC schedule. Uh, the way it kind of works is kind of fascinating to me because, you know, from a Syracuse perspective, you know, I looked at the schedule and I was like, oh, Syracuse only has to play Duke, North Carolina, Miami, and Virginia a combined five times. So those are, you know, what was supposed to be, what, the top four teams in the conference probably? How does Virginia's ACC schedule look? And, you know, if Tony Bennett wants his team to be peaking in February and into March, does the schedule permit for that? Yes, absolutely it does. And I haven't examined Syracuse's the way you guys have, obviously. But based on what you said, it seems like Virginia and Syracuse got dealt a similar hand in the sense that, you know, it's a little bit fortunate you miss the big dogs of the of the ACC in terms of not having to play them twice. Virginia only gets Miami, Duke, and North Carolina once each. I'm pretty sure. Let me just double check that real quick. Yeah. Syracuse uh, gets um, North Carolina twice, Duke, Miami, Virginia once. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's only once each for Miami, Duke, and North Carolina. And that's, I mean, that's that, that's fortunate. And the other part of it is that's all in kind of the back end of, of the schedule. So Virginia gets Miami on February 5th. So that's the only one that's like kind of at the midway point of the ACC schedule. But they don't play North Carolina until Saturday, February 24th. And then they're at Duke on March 2nd in one of the final games of the ACC calendar. So that's advantageous for a team that, like I said, has some building to do, has has to build chemistry, has to figure out how to play together, has to figure out how to implement Tony Bennett's system, you know, the way that, that we've seen it with some of his more experienced teams. We know that there are some growing pains that this team has to go through. And so it's very advantageous for Virginia's ACC schedule that the supposed best teams in the conference aren't in their schedule until the last six weeks of the season, and they only have to play them once each. So I'd say that works out pretty well for UVA. Yeah, Syracuse, the opposite. It's got uh, Virginia on December 2nd. It's got Duke on January 2nd, Miami and North Carolina also in the month of January. It's a it's a it's an it's a back, you know, loaded easier part of the schedule. One more thing before we wrap things up here, Matt, we got about six to eight inches of snow here in, in Syracuse yesterday. How are how are how are things down in, in Charlottesville? Uh, will will the Syracuse players and coaches be getting a reprieve of a little warm weather? Because, you know, they just came back from Hawaii. So, you know, I was talking to them, the, the players in the locker room last night, like, ah, miss the warm weather. <laughs> well, it's uh it's not warm. I'll say that. Although on Saturday it, it might be a little bit warm. That maybe they could actually play this one outside. I think it will. It will be up in the in the high fifties at the time that that Virginia and Syracuse are playing right now, um, or on Saturday. Right now it's it's in the low thirties, but that's because it's still pretty early in the morning. So if they came right now and tried to play the game, I'm sure they they'd still feel like they were in Syracuse. Definitely wouldn't feel like they were in Hawaii. I'll tell you that. Um, but yeah, so so hopefully they'll have some some decent weather when they're getting off the plane on on Friday and Saturday. Matt, can't thank you enough for your time. Really looking forward to to Saturday's game. Where can where can people find read your stuff? Yes, yeah, so my website is Cavaliers Now. If you just look up Cavaliers Now, it'll come up. It's uh, the Sports Illustrated Virginia Cavaliers site on the Fan Nation Network. So you can just look up Sports Illustrated Virginia, or you can look up Cavaliers Now, and you'll find all my stuff, including upcoming some preview content for this game, Virginia and Syracuse. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Matt. Really appreciate you coming on the pod. Always a, always a pleasure, and uh, looking forward to Saturday's game. Awesome. Thanks for having me.
We're now joined by Jerry Ratcliffe, who's been covering Virginia for over 40 years at this point, a member of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Jerry, how are you doing on this Wednesday morning? Doing great, Ethan. And uh, Jordan, thanks for having me. It's uh, exciting to be with you guys. Pleasure to be with you as well. So you know, starting big picture with, with Virginia, what is kind of the state of, of Tony Bennett's program right now as, as we enter, you know, what is this, four years removed from the 2019 national title? Right. Um, well, you know, last year was a little bit of a disappointment, even though they won the, the ACC regular season title and had some pretty decent players, but uh, they faded a little bit in the, down the stretch. And then uh, it was still everybody still uh, befuddled by their postseason play, losing to Furman in the first round. And uh, so it, um, a mass exodus of players at the end of the season, which uh, somewhat some of it was predictable, some of it wasn't. And uh, he had to almost rebuild from scratch. I, at one point last year, he only had four guys on his roster, including Reese Bigman, who at, at that point um, was still considering jumping to the NBA. And so uh, they had to hit the transfer portal hard and try to piece this thing back together again. And right now it, it's going well. They're, they're trying to build the chemistry and experiment with lineups, et cetera. Um, but they've, they've, a couple of warts have been exposed and uh, it'll be, this is going to be a, a big week for them playing Texas A&M tonight here in the ACC SEC challenge and then hosting Syracuse on Saturday. It's going to be, uh, it'll tell us a lot about this basketball team. You mentioned a lot of roster turnover, top three scores from last year's team um, gone. Reese Beekman, the really the, the fourth leading scorer is the, the top scorer so far this year. How has that adjustment been for Tony Bennett trying to kind of get used to his new roster and figuring some stuff out in the first couple of weeks of the season? Well, I, I think, uh, Tony's one of these guys that just really attacks things. He's an incredible competitor and he doesn't mind being challenged. So I, I think he's enjoyed the coaching part of it, trying to blend these guys together and see what he can do with them. Uh, Bigman has been a big, uh, a big part of everything. He, he's a guy that went to the NBA combine uh, worked out for a lot of NBA teams and then came back a more confident guy, um, more of a leader uh, vocally and on the floor. And he's really helped this team. He, uh, in the past, um, uh, he, he wasn't that aggressive on offense. And so that's been a big change in him. He He's not afraid to uh, take over a game. We, we saw that against West Virginia. We saw it against Florida. He wants the ball in his hands at clutch uh, crunch time, and uh, he's been pretty good so far. And uh, we already knew he was a, a menace on defense. But uh, I think the, uh, the uh, questions to be solved is how is this team going to rebound? Uh, they were out rebounded uh, forty eight to twenty one in the bad loss to Wisconsin that just physically dominated them. 
down in Fort Myers in that tournament. And then even West Virginia, who they beat in the waning seconds of that game, um, out-rebounded them 41 to 28. So they've, they've got a lot of work to do. They, they're not a really big team. Uh, a couple of the big guys transferred out. And so their, their biggest guys, uh, 6'11 freshman, Blake Buchanan, who they beat out Gonzaga for, and, uh, He's been a pleasant surprise and a little more physical than we thought he would be, but he still he needs another year in the weight room to to be able to take on the the bruisers in the ACC. And when you got a, a seven four Naheem McLeod for Syracuse probably matching up with him coming up, that'll be a a fascinating matchup to see how the freshman handles that. Going back to to Tony Bennett, as you know, as someone who's watched a lot or most of his career. Um, coaching at Virginia, what makes him different than other coaches you'll see around the country? And how is he, you know, a unique leader for the Virginia program? Well, I'll tell you, Ethan, he, uh, a lot of people, a lot of coaches preach defense, but Tony Bennett eats, sleeps and, and breathes defense. Uh, I've never seen a coach that is so defensive detail oriented. I mean, they spend the majority of their practices every day working on defense and uh, there, there's been s- some of his teams through the years. They've been it's it's a real achievement to to score forty points on these guys. And they they uh, it's a philosophy he had adapted from his father Dick Bennett, who was invented the pack line defense essentially when he was the head coach at Wisconsin. And. Uh, it's funny. It was a, a, a Michigan team came in here a few years ago, and uh, one of the uh, kids that played for Michigan was the son of a pro. I can't remember which one he was, but uh, I think they scored like thirty six points against Virginia. And he, he when he came to the press room, and he, he said, "Damn, is that all these guys do is practice defense?" I mean, they were clearly frustrated. They they want to frustrate you. And uh, Tony Bennett um, is a very intense. Uh, most people seem as a, a really nice guy, laid back, but he he's a fierce competitor. Uh, he hates losing at anything, and uh, he he can get really intense, particularly in practice, if his team's not doing right. Uh, down at the uh, ACC tip off in Charlotte a few weeks ago. Uh, I was talking to him and he said, he, he, I asked him how the team was practicing. And he said, well, they had a great practice yesterday. He said, I didn't because I exploded on them because they weren't doing things the way I wanted them to do. And it, it was a real awakening for some of the new players who had never seen that side of Tony Bennett before, but he, uh, he's just a, a fierce competitor. And uh, you, you would think sometimes that he's, ready to go out onto the court and play. He's so fired up during games. And uh, I, I actually sat beside of him uh, at a game at VCU a few years ago. And uh, we normally don't get that close up a look at him, but uh, I was actually sitting right beside of him, the press at the end of the press table, right beside his seat. And uh, I saw a, a side of Tony Bennett. I, I, you can't tell from uh, the press area in normal games and, 
Uh, I remember one mad scramble for a loose ball that came out of bounds right in front of us, and the referee called the VCU ball, and uh, I thought he made a bad call, and, and Tony really thought he made a bad call, and Tony was just, uh, you know, just going in a million different directions, and he turned to me, and he said, was that a good call? And I said, no, and he said, I thought so. <laughs> but uh, he, he just gets so intense in games, it's unbelievable. But he, he's a fierce competitor, and, and – um, He'll do anything within the legalities to win a basketball game. Yeah, that's awesome. The game that I remember, Syracuse, Virginia, when Virginia in the opener in 2019 beat them, uh, Syracuse 48 to 34. Yeah, uh, an elite, <laughs> elite score right there. We're talking about the defense and, and Tony Benton's coaching, something that's been a staple for Syracuse. Obviously, Jim Beheim and the 2 3 zone no longer necessarily with the program consistently. Adrian Autry, the new head coach, running a lot of man to man. How much does that major adjustment in the coaching style and the defensive style for Syracuse impact Virginia's prep and, and game plan going into Saturday's game? Well, I, I know that uh, I think Tony actually had a good solution for the 2-3 zone, uh, probably more so than anybody else that I've seen. He, he seemed to know how to attack it. Um, he apparently put a formula together several years ago where he would use sometimes use a point guard in the high in the high post and uh, distribute the balls in on the wings uh but he he had great success uh for the most part against the two three zone so i think tony's probably would like to have seen that come back but uh certainly he's a, a, a adept at the man-to-man which we see most of the time and what what they play uh, to some degree, but um, I, I think um, it'll be interesting. To, it's it'll be strange to see Syracuse not in, sitting back in that zone after all these years. It, it's been an adjustment for us too. Get it, having having to watch yeah. having to watch man to man, and it's it's very different having uh, Adrian Autry on the sidelines and not. Jim Beheim, how close were were Beheim and and Tony Bennett? Because you know Virginia has kind of had Syracuse's number of late, uh, won nine of the last ten matchups. So obviously you have the the twenty sixteen Elite Eight game where Syracuse you know stages that that ferocious comeback and advances to the Final Four. What was the relationship like between Beheim and Bennett? You know he was close with. I would say probably closer with other ACC coaches like Coach K and Roy Williams and Jim Laranega. What was that relationship like? I think they had a really good relationship. I know uh, Tony had uh, great respect for, for Bayheim and I, th- I think it was mutual. Um, I miss Jim, Jim Bayheim because I always thought he was a great interview when, as, even when he got testy sometimes. But uh, uh, I, I, I thought he was very honest. Sometimes he, he didn't, you know, he didn't pull any punches. So, uh, but I, I, I always enjoyed uh, listening to his post games, and I, I had a couple of one-on-one interviews with him over the years, and he was always really good. Um, but I think both of those guys had a lot of respect for one another and, and what they've been able to accomplish. They're, sorry, I have a dog that's uh, going bananas. Uh, stop, stop, stop. But um, he's out of control. 
He's almost as big as I am, so I can't stop him. What kind of what kind of dog is it? What kind of dog is it? The English uh, pointer and uh, a part hound. I, I, I oh wow! He, he's a rescue dog I got from New York, believe it or not. But, oh, very cool. Yeah. Um. But yeah, um, I, I think those guys uh, really enjoyed coaching against each other because they presented something different that that would challenge them and. Uh, it, they had some really knockdown drag out games and that um, elevated some team to greatness and, and wrecked some teams like Syracuse did to Virginia in 2016 when all the writers were booking their uh, plane tickets to Houston for the final four and uh, watched Syracuse throw a full court press on that. And Virginia melted into a puddle of goo right before our very eyes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm um, looking at that this season specifically. You talked about the rebounding being a big uh, note of concern, especially against Wisconsin. Um, looking at the schedule as a whole and going into the Texas A&M game, what are you looking for Virginia to improve on the most, maybe outside of the rebounding aspect? I think they uh, they have a they in, brought in a bunch of guys from the portal who had really good shooting reputations. Um, uh, Jake Groves from um, Oklahoma uh, has, has been, was uh, a, pre a pretty dangerous three-point shooter. And uh, he, he uh, had some pretty good moments at Oklahoma his senior year, uh, playing with his brother, who's now in the NBA. But uh, I, I think uh, – He's been okay. Andrew Rohde, who played at St. Thomas, which was a Division three school, uh, was one of the top three-point shooters in the country. And and I think he led the freshman in the country in scoring. And he has struggled a little bit, and that, that's been a surprise. And then uh, another kid, um, Dante Harris, a point guard from Georgetown, who was here last February and practiced with the team as he set out the – year as a red shirt um has been a really good defensive player uh to kind of take up where kihei clark left off uh, a really good on ball defender but his offense hasn't been uh quite as good as everybody expected so those three guys are probably gonna have to step it up a little bit um they're they're really just not producing as many points as I think Tony expected because he, he knew there's there's a lot of versatility and a lot of depth on this team, but the scoring just hasn't been there. Um, Ryan Dunn, who has drawn some comparisons to DeAndre Hunter, uh, is starting to live up to those reputations. And he he's um, a three-level scorer. He can defend multiple positions. He's their leading rebounder at only – six seven six eight and uh he's been pretty solid so far and uh an, another kid that redshirted last year leon bond uh is starting to grow into his role i think he's going to be pretty good um he's he's sort of a sort of a version of of done really and uh we, we haven't seen the best of him yet he's got a big wingspan can rebound can defend multiple positions but I think that the part, the portion of the team that they 
to for them to be what they want to be, that they're going to have to step up the scoring. And Isaac McNeely is is part of that. He's a really good three point shooter, sophomore, who started most of the games last year. And um, I, I'm a little surprised that they haven't done for him what Shashevsky did for JJ Reddick down at Duke when they had a sharpshooter like that and create all kinds of different screens to get him open and, and get him more shots. McNeely, he only took uh, four shots in, in uh, a couple of games, and that's, that's not enough for him. He needs to take probably 10, 12, 15 shots a game. You you mentioned expectations. When you look at this team as a whole, is this a you know team that could or or should you know be a second weekend NCAA tournament team? I know they're finished in the top four, which would be a double buy in the ACC tournament. What should the expectations be for this team from a you know a realistic perspective? Maybe not a fan's perspective because you know they just watched them win a national title you know four or five years almost five years ago. At this point, that may not be as realistic as as something else. Right. Um, you're, you're exactly right. And I, th- I think that spoiled their fans to some degree because now they expect them to go out and win the ACC every year. But um, I mean, it depends on how this team comes together. It looks like there's enough talent there to maybe get them to the second weekend if, if they get a good matchup and, and don't do anything uh, silly like they did last year and, and just let a, a team that shouldn't have been on uh, shouldn't have been able to stay with them stay make it a close game and then then you're asking for trouble but uh, I, I think everybody's cautiously optimistic because these guys have uh, come from good stock they've they've had good numbers at the other places they've been I think it's just a matter of whether they can find the chemistry. And, and again, I, I think the rebounding, that's a, that's a puzzle they're going to have to solve because there's going to be some teams in the ACC like Syracuse and uh, against A&M tonight, who has some big physical guys uh, that they're going to struggle against if they can't find ways to get boards. I know he's, he's talking to, the guards and trying to get them more involved and Virginia's guards usually are fairly involved in rebounding and it's hard for them to get many offensive rebounds because of the pack line, because his philosophy is to after the shot, get back down the floor and get set up. But um, they've got to, they've got to solve that issue. If, if they want to make any kind of a run into the postseason, I think. We're feeling the same things here in Syracuse, cautious optimism, but this, uh, Syracuse and Virginia similar and that still needing a little bit more time to, to gel and get going. What what do you think is, is going to, I don't want to ask you for a prediction, but you know, the last few matchups between these two teams have been pretty close. Would you expect another close game on Saturday? I would. I, I really do. And uh, I, I watched a little bit of your game last night. Uh, I thought you were going to blow LSU out of the arena, <laughs> uh, but uh yeah, I think it'll be another close game because uh, the way Virginia plays, their style of play, unless they are hitting at a really high number, uh, teams stick around uh, whether they're playing well or not. And Syracuse is playing well, so I expect them to to make it a close game. If not, if not win, they've won here before. Um, I, I know you have a local kid on on your team, Justin Taylor, who looks like he's having a decent year. 
but yeah, I, I think this will probably come down to the last three, four minutes, like a lot most most ACC games do, in, at least against Virginia, uh, even here at home. But uh, it, it'll be interesting if if it's not a close game, I'll be really surprised. Yeah, Justin Taylor talked about it after the game. He he's excited to go back and play at Virginia again for the for the second straight year. Jerry, really appreciate your time. Where uh, where where can we find your coverage of of Virginia basketball? Well, it's really easy. It's jerryracklifteup.com. <laughs> uh, it was going off my brand that I built here over a few decades, and so most Virginia fans uh, are familiar with my work, but. Uh, that's where you'll find it. And we do podcasts and, and have some internet TV shows and all sorts of stuff. So uh, it's easy to find. Well, really, really appreciate you taking some time with us this morning and, and looking forward to reading and following along before uh, and during Saturday's game. Well, thank you guys for having me. I always enjoy talking to uh, young journalists and journalism students. And uh, I, I'll, I have to say, I admire your background with the PGA stuff there I'm a, I'm a big golfer and uh i've got a room downstairs with about 20 of those flags hanging up in there we, we can save the golf golf for for, for another show but i appreciate that's that right. yeah that's right <laughs> all right have a great day guys thank you jerry Thanks so much to jerry and matt for their time to teach us a little about what's going on with the cavaliers it's an exciting time for the Ostrom Avenue podcast. And we thank Empire Hearing and Audiology for being a part of that and, and for their continued support of the show. Ostrom Picks, returning for basketball after my win over Jordan in football. That's now twice I've defeated Jordan in an Ostrom Avenue Picks competition and three in a row for yours truly, dating back to last year's football season. People are are wondering if it's a dynasty. And I am certainly one of those people who are wondering if, if, if it's a dynasty. Hudson is here to take part in Ostrom Picks as we started up for a 20 game ACC season. So almost double the amount of games we picked for football. Uh, it, it'll be really interesting to see how things go uh, in this. So Hudson, since you're the newcomer, what are you excited about for being a part of Ostrom picks? Uh, I'm excited to end your dynasty probably and start a new one of my own. Hudson, I, I, I don't know if I would call it a dynasty. I, I mean, if he's calling it a dynasty, I'll end it. If you're not calling it a dynasty, I'll end whatever he has going right now. I, I'm ready to wipe the floor with both of you. I will I will say, Hudson, it, it is a different animal picking basketball games, especially in the middle of January when, <laughs> when they play on a Tuesday and a Saturday and you just don't know how they're going to come out and play. Uh, I will not say it's a dynasty because I wasn't there for the initial football. Johnny you win would three call in it a, a row. Dynasty. Johnny would call it a dynasty. Jo well, Johnny objectively has to because he he lost to you every step of the way. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm I'm excited. I feel like Ethan's riding this high. He's like the 16 and 0 New England Patriots. He's not he's not really worried. And then come Super Bowl time, he, it's gonna crumble. It's gonna crumble. All right, mm. whatever you guys say. Uh, I I I vehemently disagree. But uh, if, if you guys want to think that way, you guys want to think that way. And uh, and I'll just prove it to you, uh, I guess, not on the court. Hudson, on, I, I will say, even if it becomes a major 
Syracuse basketball support. If they if they start winning, he'll start hitting the orange every game. If they start losing, he will start betting the opponent every single game. <laughs> he's a, he's a sucker. That's sheep's picks right there. That's what I'm hearing. I know I've been watching Syracuse basketball a lot longer than the two of you have, so I know the trends. I know how things go. So you know what? I'm going to use that knowledge to my advantage. Um, you know. What are you guys thinking ahead of this Virginia game? I'm not sure what the line will be. I guess it depends on how Virginia plays against Texas A&M tonight. I would expect Virginia to be a single-digit favorite. You know, Matt talked about how he thinks he would be surprised if it wasn't a close game. I mean, last year, Syracuse wasn't a great basketball team, and both of those games were decided by seven points or less, uh, no matter where they were played. So I'm thinking we're in for another, you know, one or two possession game here. Yeah, I think Syracuse has battle-attested enough at this point in the season, having played Tennessee and Gonzaga in the Maui Invitational, having faced adversity against Colgate at home, basically destroying LSU in the second half. They've been battle-tested enough where they're going to go into Virginia knowing that they can win this game. I don't think Virginia is as good as they have been in the past. They lost a lot of guys um, at, from last year's team. So I think this game is ripe for the taking for Syracuse. It's just you got to go down in Charlottesville, which is a tough place to play, and go scrape out a win. Yeah, Virginia is also going to be coming off a game against a Texas A&M team that is incredibly tough to beat. So that mixed with maybe a, a little bit of uh, not lack of rest, but two back-to-back big matchups. I don't know how Virginia will handle it. Tony Bennett obviously has his guys whipped up into shape clearly, and he's had it like that for a long time. I don't know if Syracuse is at the point where they can get over the hump yet and beat a Tony Bennett team. Also, when you look at the total, obviously total for basketball, insane to, to bet on. I, I know lines makers will be good. This is going to be a game with a total probably around 100, maybe less than 100. I I mean, no, you, no, I, I would say I think between one none ten. of these off. I don't think either of these offenses are good enough at this point. To, to I think it's right. to much know, higher Hudson's than no fun. He's betting the under. Uh, yeah, you know what? I will bet the under. Wow. No fun Hudson to open his Ostrom picks career. All right. That will do it for this edition of the Ostrom Avenue podcast, a lengthy one, uh, but there's a lot going on. So we appreciate you tuning in and make sure you follow all of WAER's coverage. You know, later this week, we've got sports night on Friday night from eight to 9 PM on WAER. And then on Saturday, Syracuse at Virginia, a noon tip off, which means our coverage gets going at 1130 AM Eastern time and goes all the way up until 4 PM after the game. Make sure you follow us on social media at Ostrom Avenue pod at WAER sports at WAER sports talk and make sure you check out our website as well waer.org and the ostrom avenue podcast youtube account if you want to see our beautiful faces at ostrom avenue podcast all right guys thanks so much that was a lot of fun we'll do it again next week and you know no more coaching search but i'm sure we'll have plenty to react to from fran brown's introductory press conference and then the big one syracuse at georgetown it'll be an exciting week and a lot to talk about so thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you then